from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. and familiars. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. Be sure to sign up for the free email newsletter to get a new episode every Tuesday direct to your inbox, as well as announcements for upcoming live streams. My guest today is a college lecturer, poet, and novelist. He's a writer of dark speculative fiction with a blend of quantum physics. He's joining me today to talk about his recent novel, The Mobius Door, as well as his upcoming work, Galatok. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Andrew Nyberg. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this 24th day of May 2023. Your work was recommended to me by Ruth Ann Jaggi, so I decided to check out your novel, The Mobius Store, and she did not lead me astray. Your prose is poetic, but technical, surreal, and terrifying, and most of all, suspenseful and entertaining. So I'm in awe of your literary skill, and I'm excited to have you on the show today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really glad you enjoyed it. That's uh, honestly the only thing I ever really hope. Yeah, hell of a book. So the Mobius door had a lot to do with connections between alternate dimensions, Now, I know you're a senior editor for Symposium Magazine, which is based on rational discourse, which we will definitely get to later on in the show. So I assume you to be someone that's not caught up in woo. However, the realm of theoretical physics seems so much like woo that it's hard to tell if you're reading something written by Sean Carroll or if you're reading something written by someone who's mentally ill. (laughs) So... (laughs) What kind of research did you do to create the complex relationship between length, width, depth, time, and consciousness in the book? So I can't say I sat down to prepare to write this book and did active research. Instead, I've had a long-standing interest in a couple of different fields. I've been interested in astronomy and quantum physics ever since I was little. When I got older, I got considerably interested in cognitive theory on and off as well. Um, I've actually done a number of different uh, investigations into various world religions, especially those with more philosophical outlooks as opposed to, uh, for lack of a better term, magical outlooks. So 
Eastern philosophies, for example, tend to be more grounded, but also more interested in the perception of our world. In particular, though, I, I read a lot of academic journals as they come out. I try to keep an eye out for interesting studies, research releases, etc., about quantum phenomena. Like just recently, uh, I was reading a number of different papers about studies that have indicated that subjective perspective is measurably different in the physical world. So, I mean, you know, basically the idea that we literally do all inhabit our own universes that just basically overlap and almost interlock in some pretty fascinating ways. And so what I do is... I read a lot about these types of subjects. You know, I'll read about black holes one day, you know, I'll read about um, a planet made entirely of diamond the next. And over time, I don't really try to retain a lot of the details of the study. Instead, I'm more interested in what I feel to be the conceptual implications of them. So, you know, I read them to understand them at the time, but I don't like take notes. I don't study them like I might have when I was a graduate student or even somebody within that field. But over time, you know, I just start building connections between these. And so when it starts coming time to tell stories and I start looking for a backdrop, a concept that I want to bounce off of, a lot of those ideas are already there. And I just start pulling different connections between them and the characters I'm starting to design that I want to be the vehicles of the stories. Mm. So write what you know, but what you happen to know <laughs> happens to be happens to be quite extensive in the realm of consciousness, quantum physics and the like. You know, I know I just made a statement about you probably not being drawn to woo per se, but have you ever heard of Michael Aquino? Um, the name rings a bell, but I can't say that I've specifically encountered his work. So he was the founder of an initiatory occult group called the Temple of Set, but he was a colonel in the army over their psyop divisions. So he was involved in Project Stargate. Uh, not as far as I know, not MK Ultra, but reading his stuff was the first time I ever heard somebody's own consciousness referred to as their own subjective universe. You're reading in more mainline scientific quantum physics. That's common people's own consciousness being referred to as its own subjective universe. Well, I think the place where I drew this from and where I first encountered that idea was a study about um, the phenomenology of death. And basically the thesis of the paper was that death itself is not subjectively real, that a consciousness is not capable of experiencing death or non-being. And their theory is that rather than experiencing nothingness, which would be contradictory, one would instead experience a experience in decreasing intervals of time. So the best way to conceptualize it is actually to go back to ancient Greece and to think about Zeno's paradox of halves, where you have point A and you have point B. And if you move half the distance between point A and point B, and then you move half that distance, and then you move half that distance, there's an infinite number of halves that you'd be able to close towards your end point. And Zeno's paradox implied that it would be possible that there is no real way to move from point A to point B as a result when understood in a purely mathematical framework. So it's a similar idea that gets applied to the idea of consciousness that 
when you're no longer experiencing time in minutes, you experience it in seconds, then milliseconds and microseconds. And that would just keep going on ad infinitum. And that is one conceptualization of what would happen after death or at the moment of death. And so we continue experiencing, even though the world around us moves on because our relationship to time is no longer in sync with the time surrounding us. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is that's something I've thought a lot about. It's a really fascinating concept to me. And one thing I would imagine is, you know, once you start breaking away from the traditional passage of time and measurement of our lives in time, you know, if we go into, say, sensory deprivation, for example, I think you get a taste of it that, you know, you really can construct some very vivid imagination around yourself. And so if we have all of eternity, essentially speaking, to continue experiencing in these infinitesimally smaller amounts of time, I would also therefore imagine that we'd be able to populate that with our own imagination and world. And so to me, that is a strong case for the idea that our minds are their own universes, or at least they're capable of expanding to that capacity. Okay. As soon as we're done here, I'm going to need some book recommendations. <laughs> Well, so circling back to the book, the story begins with a young man by the name of Stuart who's out in the middle of the woods where he has a particular hideaway where he's building a fort. It's there that he stumbles upon the Mobius door. Was there something about that particular area that not only attracted the boy to build his fort there, but also resulted in it being the location where the door appeared? And if so, if it's not going to create some sort of spoiler, <laughs> what was it? So... There's two ways I'll answer that. One, I'll admit that there is an extent to which the opening chapter was designed around my childhood experiences. In writing the characters of Stuart and Micah, I drew pretty heavily on growing up with my sister and the places we used to play when we were little. And so the forest location where Stuart finds the door is it in fact a real location off of a park called Roby Park just outside Nashua, New Hampshire. And it was a place where I used to go by myself to be away from family. And I actually built a fort there out of sticks and assorted flotsam that I found. So there's that part where there was a very real grounding to that opening. But that being said, the idea of how the door would operate. So I'm very interested in the idea of dimensions beyond our own, as you can tell. And I also have always been intrigued by depictions of sort of the minutia of the fabric of space-time in quantum terms. When we talk about things like quantum foam, um, we talk about pores in the quantum foam. And I've kind of just developed the idea from that, that there would naturally be thicker and thinner parts of um, that quantum fabric. And so to me, that particular location isn't exactly special in and of itself in that it's just really, to me, a thin spot in the quantum foam where another dimension is able to encroach closer to our own. But I also think that there is something in Stuart himself and the amount of time he's spent living inside of his own head. In fact, actually, in the earliest draft of that opening chapter, it was about 20 pages longer and spent a lot more time exploring Stuart's imaginative life. When I began writing the book, I had actually conceptualized the opening almost with a YA tone to it. 
And that did largely shatter when I decided to end the chapter the way that I do. Um, mm. That felt distinctly out of joint with your yeah. typical <laughs> um, YA. But, <laughs> um, but no, part of the idea was is that this child is exceptionally imaginative. And so that helped draw him to this weak spot where there is this thing waiting to invade and assault imaginations. Mm. Interesting. So more of a a natural ability or he just was so inclined like an introvert to be turned inward that it was almost like strengthening a muscle? I'd say that, yeah, for one reason or another. And then, you know, we get a couple of little glimpses of it. We get the sense that his home life is less than ideal, you know, that he seems to be a child who feels like he's under a decent bit of pressure and stress. So, you know, I think there's a combination of elements, but um, ultimately, yeah, he has sort of built himself into this very particular vulnerability that intersects at the exact right time with this particular place. Um, and that door to me could have appeared in many different places. In fact, there's reference, you know, later in the piece to a second entry, a second location, and the visitor just happened to steer towards this one to f sort of phrase it without too much of a spoiler. So yeah, there's that element of proximity. It's, it's about the only coincidence I tried to work with in the piece, that I'm not a fan of coincidence in writing. I like cause and effect. I like one thing to lead to the next. And so if I was going to have an opening element that required a convergence, I wanted to sort of leave it at that. Okay. Well, speaking of Stuart's family, Stuart's mother finds out from his brother, Micah, that he's out in the woods where he's not supposed to be. So what ensues next is some very significant violence. And the gravity of that violence doesn't come so much from gore. It comes from the way that the incident is processed by the minds of everyone involved and the realistic way the physics of the injuries are incurred. And Ruth Ann told me that your sister is a physician. So I wondered if you utilized her as a technical advisor for the medical aspects of the story. And if so, how did you approach brainstorming with her? So there's two sides to the answer to that. I will say there's another life out there where I did go into medicine as my field. Oh, um, okay. So I have had a longstanding interest in it. And when I was just starting undergraduate, I actually began in computer science. I hadn't been convinced or it's more that uh, my parents hadn't been convinced that writing was a viable pathway. So, you know, I, I had been interested at, in video games at the time. And so I had decided to start out in computer science thinking, hey, maybe I can write the plots for video games and write scripts, but then also have the coding skill as uh, my main income. And um, as part of getting started in that, I ended up getting an internship with a hospital chain based in Knoxville called Covenant Health, specifically the Fort Sanders hospital network within their larger umbrella. And um, so for two and a half years, I worked in their IT departments and I would do things like software and hardware upgrades. I do inventory runs. And basically over the course of that, I ended up in every single part of every single hospital. And I, you know, I talked with a lot of doctors while I was there and a lot of the nurses in particular. And so, I, you know, I was really interested in the environment. And that's part of why I chose the hospital as such a major set piece in the narrative. I really did want to be able to bring the piece to to that particular environment because I have a lot of associations with it, some of which are legitimately terrifying, actually. <laughs> um, and uh, 
but then also um, some of which is just sort of run a mill and work a day. But so there is that side of things where I've, I've always been really interested in it. That's another field I do like to read out of is medicine. But also at the same time, I absolutely do run every medical idea past my sister. She has received texts at all hours um, <laughs> with some of the weirdest freaking questions. You know, it'll be something like, you know, I really want a character's hand to turn black and rot off at the wrist. What's going to do that? <laughs> um, you know, I had a failed novel that I wrote before Mobius Store, and that one actually had a very heavy medical thread that ran through it. And we had many back and forths in preparation for that one. But yeah, I mean, anytime, you know, my sister's an ER physician, so oh, okay. she deals with a lot of direct trauma injuries. And so anytime I have a trauma question, gunshots, knife wounds, car accidents, she's where I go. Sometimes I'll research it first and then ask if I got it right. Other times I'll be like, look, just tell me what I need to be saying here. But it's been something we talked about for a long time. Hmm. Well, within the chaos of the violence, something very significant happens to Stuart. He's technically not Stuart, but in a sense still is. And he's explained within a dualist context of humans having a mind and a soul. So it sounds like your concept of that, based on what you said previously, is a little bit more complex. But do you have a concrete belief in the relationship between the mind and the body? And does your writing reflect it or is it a medium to explore it? It's definitely the latter, actually. I've always been interested in those kinds of questions. I used to teach a Western humanities class with the explicit theme of the relationship and development of the relationship between truth and identity from about 1660 to the present. So it would run through things like um, Rene Descartes, which would, of course, obviously examine Cartesian dualism, empiricism and that kind of thing. And it would move all the way up to much more modern, postmodern literature where, you know, identity becomes something far less stable, more fragmented. And so one thing I'll definitely say is I don't feel like there's a satisfactory answer at this point anywhere. Not that I've come across at least. You know, we have a lot of theoretical concepts, but it's something that I feel is been poorly studied. And I don't think we have a lot of the components we need in order to truly understand it. Just for example, we're still arguing over why we dream. There's uh, a number of pretty compelling and interesting theories about it, but you know, none of them really give a definitive answer. You know, what is consciousness itself? We don't entirely understand that either. I mean, yeah, you know, you can take the leap of faith and choose a religion and say, you know, it's obviously the soul, but that's not grounded. I don't have any issue with the idea of a leap of faith, but it's also not proven truth. It's an accepted idea of a truth. So basically, though, it's a very central question to a lot of my work. What is the nature between these things that we're anchored to and this thing that resides inside us? So in fact, I've got a story coming out in a, an anthology called Gods and Globes. It's called We Have No Spare Parts, and it's about a uh, spaceship crew. They're on a mining mission to retrieve an asteroid, just bring it back to Earth for rare metals. And in the process, they get knocked off course and basically end up on an endless drift out towards deep space. And 
They were never meant to have such a long mission, though they do have considerable ability to synthesize supplies out of, you know, onboard stuff and things like that. But um, so they're trying to perpetuate their bodies as long as they can on this drift. And they begin increasingly replacing themselves with robotic parts, prosthetics, 3D printed organs and that kind of thing. (laughs) Um, And uh, to the point where nobody in the crew is fully human anymore, like the doctor on the ship is actually literally just an eyeball and face mounted to a robotic apparatus. They kept the face because they thought it would help them deal with their patients in the ship. Other crew members have entirely uploaded their consciousness into the mainframe, and they've completely relinquished their bodies. And, you know, one of the central questions is, at what point are these even still humans? It's sort of a ship of Theseus theme behind it. If you just keep replacing out all of the parts until nothing is left, you know, at some point, did they actually cease being human? And so it's a question that comes up again and again in a lot of different ways, because, again, I don't think there's a good answer to it that's concrete, but there's a lot of different, interesting and compelling answers. Yeah. Well, circling back to the book, the violent episode that I mentioned earlier lands Micah in the hospital, which is basically, as you mentioned earlier, ground zero for shit hitting the fan. (laughs) And uh, this is when a strange black cloud starts to settle down on the town like a thick fog and people begin to behave erratically. So to me, the villain that you've created for this story seems to be very in tune with human psychology because the way it manifests itself and interacts with humans is not just scary in general. It plays on the particular individual's deep-rooted fears and emotional hangups. So is a large part of what this being is composed of actually mind or consciousness? And if so, What's the benefit or, I guess, drive for its interaction with human consciousness? So the simplest answer comes back to the idea of an individual mind being its own subjective universe. When the door opens and the black cloud starts to pour out, when we see it in the story, one of the quickest conclusions we're likely to reach is that the thing coming out into our world has a singular source. From my conceptualization of it, every single person within the town has had that door open in their minds. And so some people are more resilient and less susceptible to it than others. Um, You know, for example, um, while Heather at the beginning of the story is a little bit, you know, she's a very rigid person. I wanted her to have a very stiff framework that she sees the world in. But then also we see as her character progresses that her drive largely starts to focus on the well-being of her family over herself. You know, she still gets some of her hangups and quirks come to mind throughout, but uh, she's not as inward a character. She's really an outward looking person. But no, basically, the idea is that if we're looking at the idea of raw conquest, the source, or, you know, as it's later referred to, the abomination, it could try to conquer the three-dimensional physical plane of this planet, perhaps of the universe. But what kind of conquest is that compared to, what, nine billion individual universes, um, each of which is massively expansive in its own right? So in terms of what it's trying to accomplish, it's a much more ambitious goal, I think, to invade minds than it is to simply swarm the planet. 
Okay. So when you said everybody in the town had opened that door themselves, do you mean like, you know, they're people in a small town, so there's not much going on. So a lot of them are turned inward and much like Stuart, they're more susceptible. Sorry. Yeah. To clarify, Stuart is the one who opened all the doors. Okay. So the first time the knob opens, that's when it opens for everybody. Now, if you recall, though, in the beginning scene, the darkness doesn't pour out of that door Mm -hmm. right away. You know, it's not until the ill-fated rock that it begins then to emerge into reality in front of him. Because I want there to be an element of free will for each individual person. And that was an important part of my design for it. But, um, you know, all it takes at that point is for the person to have some willingness within them to probe the darkness. Um, So once they break that surface, who they are has then allowed it into themselves. Okay, gotcha. Well, one particular character that I thought was really creepy was the old man that was at the hospital when Micah is first (laughs) taken in. His interaction is mainly with Deputy McCorville and Percy Weaver. He's physically disgusting and heaves a lot of passive aggressive and overtly aggressive insults around. But they feel like they can't get too mad or fire back because he's just a grouchy old man. (laughs) But... He seemed like he was an avatar of the villain himself, the source, as it were. Is that true? And if not, what was it about this particular minion that made it able to psychologically terrorize people so well? Um, In terms of sort of the villains of the story, he was a lot of fun to write. I've always been a big fan, as you can tell, of things like possession narratives, the way in which things like vampire narratives also, you have that mask that then drops and you see a much more corrupt form within. So he actually does have something of a history that's not presented in the story. It was some of the back work that I did for building towards him. And Essentially speaking, he is a character who had been a doomsday prepper, Mm -hmm. and none of this made it into the final draft, I'm afraid. I actually decided to simply make him a more uncanny avatar, where he sort of starts off initially almost like a normal person, but then he becomes increasingly offsetting. And I liked the idea of not fully explaining his origin. But um, in my notes, he had basically sealed himself and his wife in his doomsday bunker. And then um, when he found out that the apocalypse he saw coming didn't happen, he killed his wife and then was going to kill himself and then Mm. chose not to. There's one small vestige of that chapter in the final draft, which is the title, Happiness is a Hole in the Ground. (laughs) Um, The initial uh, rendition of that chapter actually alternated back and forth between that character's history and the two boys. So there's sort of the extended lore version of it, I guess, where he had a much fuller backstory that made him uniquely susceptible in that he had sort of already embraced an apocalypse in his own way, and he was almost looking forward to it. So he's the kind of person who would be a natural vehicle to me to sort of you know, channel that outward. But otherwise, when you come down to sort of the brass tacks of it, you know, there is 
an extra dimensional evil at the core of the story. And it's an evil that's been given access, at least to some extent, to the unconscious or subconscious of all of the folk in the town. So, you know, that's why it's the source, that there's all of these sort of access points, but ultimately it all leads back to this very, uh, this originating point. And so it's actually pulling from all of the people in town and anybody who comes within the radius that uh, is affected by the phenomenon. Yeah, just like you're talking about, the story deals a lot with the connection between the people and between other universes. So I know we've <laughs> we went off into the weeds earlier about uh, uh, theories of consciousness, but I want to bring another one up. Were you experimenting with the hermetic concept of the universal mind for this story? As I know that's kind of like a, a spiritual occult thing, but, you know, a more materialistic quantum physics mind matter interaction. So to uh, to an extent, I kind of was. One of my favorite books is a book of poetry by Dr. Arthur Smith. He was a mentor of mine for a really long time. And it's called The Fortunate Era. And the title is drawn from a Nobel Prize winning physicist who had theorized that right now we're living in what he called the fortunate era. And what that was is that is the time period in which matter can exist. Before that, based on the law of conservation of matter and energy, if there's no matter, then everything must be energy. And then it is to energy that this theorist believes we will return or the universe will return. And, you know, one thing that I've thought of a good bit in the past is if the only thing that exists is energy and one particular interpretation of, you know, the psyche or, you know, sentience or what have you, is that I've seen it conceptualized as almost sort of um, a pattern of energy, you know, that uh, if nothing else, we understand our, our neural network to be sort of a dense network of energy and neurons. Some folk have sort of, you know, described it almost in purely electrical terms. And so my thinking at the time was that if everything is energy, then it would also necessitate that all patterns and configurations of energy exist simultaneously, which would create something that would overlap or reflect the idea of this sort of pool of souls, I guess you could call it, or, you know, um, so, you know, a collective existence. And then it would then naturally return ultimately to a connective existence. And so that's one of the frameworks that I've played with over time. And I think to a certain extent, I was a little bit drawing from that. So, um, you know, you can also overlap, of course, the traditional conceptualization of Judeo-Christian framework of there being a heaven, hell, afterlife, and then this more primordial place of soul origin, which actually they've always been like weirdly sketchy on in a lot of faiths where souls begin is this, you know, we see it played within a few narratives, but um, it's one of those questions that doesn't really get tackled a whole lot. But yeah, so we also could look at it in those kinds of terms where, you know, if we wanted to take a spiritual stance, we can say, okay, so there is this sort of collective place where everybody is coming from and to which they're returning. And that is definitely something that could be used to describe the, the conceptual framework for the relationship between soul and body or whatever terms we want to use. Yeah. Well, <laughs> continuing on with the 
I don't know, the makeup of the actual door. I think in the description of this episode, I'm just going to put Vince and Andrew talk about quantum physics. <laughs> <laughs> but I watched a, uh, a documentary that talked about wormholes in space time and that there are many wormholes that are constantly opening but are immediately closing because if they stayed open, there would be like a time-space feedback loop, just like if you were to hold a microphone directly up to an amplifier. And so I was curious... Was the Mobius door, as far as the way it operates, was a wormhole a consideration as far as the principles of the way it operated? Um, kind of. Like, ultimately, most descriptions I've seen of wormholes tend to view them more as, you know, sort of tunnels from point A to point B in traditional space-time. So, you know, you enter a wormhole at the edge of our solar system, you emerge somewhere in the constellation Sagittarius. And so the one reason I would hesitate to apply that, and it's why I, I kind of emphasize the idea of conduits and that kind of thing. I, I really wanted to avoid that terminology to an extent, because I think conceptually there is an overlap without question. But I think also at the same time, I've not particularly seen wormholes as something that moves from one dimension to another, that instead I've seen wormholes as something that moves across our dimension by crossing through other dimensions. So yeah, the idea is definitely part of the initial birth of the story, but I think at some point I sort of moved away from it as I started quibbling with the minutia. And as you can tell, I have a bad habit of obsessing over these kinds of things too, so. <laughs> I'm pot in the kettle. Uh, <laughs> uh, before I say this name, I don't want to butcher it. So V-E-L-E-S. How do you pronounce it? Oh, Velis. Velis? Okay. So probably my favorite character is Velis because, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I was just about to say he, but I guess it would be more apt. Well, I is mean. He, is in, he masculine energy? In the, <laughs> in the traditional mythology, he's generally presented as a male deity. Okay. So half my family is Croatian. So a lot of my writing revolves or draws from my Croatian heritage. So like I've got a book coming out pretty soon that's set on an island off the coast. If you look up my poetry collection, it's called The Goats Have Taken Over the Barracks, and it's largely set in Sadar, which is a coastal city of Croatia, and then um, one of the islands where my mother's family used to spend their summers. And so that's always been a big part of my writing to begin with. But I was always really interested in stories that dealt with direct interactions between some sort of deities and each other as well as humanity. And so, you know, I like pieces like American Gods and a lot of, you know, Neil Gaiman's work, um, which really sort of explores that idea a good bit. But to me, I was always really interested in the relationship between Veles and the other deity, Perun. And they're both typically masculine deities. Perun is often associated with the eagle and Veles with the serpent. There's a strong parallel in their relationship and what we see in something like Thor and Loki. And there's a lot of really cool dynamics. You know, you have these characters who exist, you know, with powers beyond the norm, but also you know, they're very earthbound deities, you know, they're not like the Judeo-Christian God, omniscient, omnipresent. They just, you know, they have their own limitations. And so they're pretty interesting to think about. To some extent, that is, you know, where he came from that um, I really wanted to work with Veles as a character, you know, the sort of forgotten fallen God that really has largely been buried in sort of the sands of disintegrating cultures. But at the same time, you know, there's also 
a certain cynicism to his character, kind of a snarkiness that definitely I think I did draw a little bit of that from my own personality as well. <laughs> to a certain extent, thinking of my relationship to the text as author to novel in progress, you know, I sort of have a larger level of control of the fates of these other more human traditional characters. And so Valets is a natural place to sort of dump a little of your own personality at that point. But yeah, so I definitely think I invested a little bit of myself in him. But also, I did want to actually honor the character to some extent as well, that um, he's a trickster deity, he's mischievous, he's underhanded, nothing he does will have face value. And to me, it was just a lot of fun to sort of embrace that kind of character. Yeah, you talk about his snarkiness. I liked his quips because they were usually delivered like a gentleman. Like my favorite one is when Vele Stewart and Heather are walking into the cloud. And once they start to get really deep, it starts getting really oppressive. There's this foul stench. And Heather asks, you know, like, what the hell is going on? And Vele says, how deep do you think a beetle could crawl into your mouth before you get tired of it being there? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, the, that's the kind of stuff I like. So my question confirmed, there is part of you in that character. <laughs> <laughs> well, so towards the end, you find out that the visitor is an aspect of the source, or I guess later to be known as the abomination. So was the visitor an aspect of the source's consciousness that was like a moral compass that was working against it? Because it was kind of strange that if it was an aspect, it would be like separate and opposed to it, like an adversary. What exactly is the relationship between the two? So the visitor absolutely is a moral compass in a way. So... I don't know that I can answer this question without, well, like I can give an answer that won't destroy, I guess. Well, the, I mean, the I, that, that's more, good enough for me that it was his moral compass. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. He has a very specific nature that ultimately we could translate as being moral compass. Okay. Well, towards the end, Stuart realizes that he, as well as the villain, grossly underestimated how powerful the human mind is, which... I thought was interesting because when the hero of a story is deciding what he needs to do to save the day, he's usually doing what his heart and soul are leading him to do, not what his logical mind is leading him to do. So was this a conscious or possibly unconscious element that you wrote based on your pursuit of reason over emotion? So there's actually a couple different answers I have to give for that one, because there is a certain pragmatic answer that has to do with my craft preferences. And that is that I don't like overtly sentimental climactic well, decisions. Saccharine nonsense. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I spent a number of pages throughout the story, a decent chunk, you know, really building a sentimental relationship between Stuart and his brother. And then I also did hope to have sentiment on the protectiveness of Heather for her children and, you know, even with the father as well. I tried to invest earlier parts of the narrative with some of the more sympathetic emotions. But yeah, I really didn't want the crux of the climax to rest on a purely sentimental decision. So that was part of it. But the second side of it is that I think there's an almost invariable way in which major plot elements are going to reflect what we want to say with the book. 
And in this case, you know, I'm a teacher, you know, I'm a writer, I'm an academic, I really love exploring philosophy, um, the spiritual even, and then the exotic, you know, things like quantum physics. And so, you know, I think that I've always been awed by just what we are capable of pulling together in our minds. And that I think I do have a tremendous belief in the power and ability of humanity to actually use our good reason, <laughs> um, which I know we don't always do, but I do think that there is just the most immense power in it. And so I did to an extent want the solution, not just to be because I'm going to do the right thing or I'm going to sacrifice myself out of love. I wanted him to really rationally have reached that conclusion that, you know, I feel like acting in each other's and our own betterment is ultimately the real rational choice. And so, you know, I wanted that character as ultimately his actions become sort of a mouthpiece at that point. But I also, you know, I'm hoping I didn't beat the story over the head with that as an idea either. I, I wanted it just to be sort of implied by my choice as an author to make that the way it plays out. Yeah. Well, the end of the book seems like you left it open for a possible follow-up. Is that the case? And if not, what condition were you attempting to leave the reader? In what condition, I should say? <laughs> so, so far, I've not written anything with the direct concept of a follow-up in mind. It's not to say that there's obviously an open-endedness to the conclusion that would allow, in theory, a second narrative or cycle to begin. And, you know, since the book did get taken, I've given a little bit of thought to the possibility, and it's not something I'm entirely closed down to in the long run. But that being said, you know, I like stories that are contained, that are one-off narratives. I don't want to always be asking, is this the start of a franchise? <laughs> um, you know, uh, I really like exploring new ideas and building new characters and engaging with new themes. And so, you know, for the time being, I largely did intend this to be a singular narrative. That being said, I did want there to be an element of sort of unsettling ambiguity to the mm. end. You know, when he reaches for... Well, I won't specifically yeah, voice yeah, yeah. that thought. I think that's no, un unsettling um, ambiguity is a perfect summation of the end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because ultimately, you know, if our own mind is a universe, let's say I do decide to write a sequel later on. Maybe I would do it. But for the moment, I want what happens next to exist uniquely in the mind of the reader. That's um you know, I think it's in keeping with the themes of the story to leave it with that kind of ambiguity, because ultimately, as this conversation's kind of skipped back and forth to that, um, if we exist in our own subjective universes, then everybody who reads the book is capable of building their own narrative out forward from there. Well, it was a great book and can't recommend it enough, as well as before you even crack the book open, an amazing cover. Can you tell us about the cover and if there's an artist we can give a plug? Okay, so first off, I am so thrilled with the cover. I wish I had. Normally um, I have it right on the desk with me, but it's right behind me. <laughs> yeah, I've got it right here. So the cover artist, it's Christian Bentulan. B-E-N-T-U-L-A-N. And he's done, um, as far as I understand, most of the covers for Wicked House. And the way it worked is pretty simple. I do a lot of my own promo design stuff. So folk who follow my social media feed will see a number of different 
advertisements and things like that. One of which, uh, one of the early ads had an early kind of conceptual rendition from Mid Journey of the door in the woods with the tagline, something is knocking. And I sent that to Christian along with the other promo images I'd made. And then a couple of photographs that I felt were related to the forest. And then basically from there said, okay, you know, this is what I was working with. You know, we talked about what the story was about a little bit. I sent him some information to help him fill that out. And then, yeah, he bounced back an early draft of the current cover. We went back and forth on a couple of minor details, but yeah, he nailed it first time out, you know, aside from a couple of tiny touches. The only thing that really stands out to me was in the initial version, the smoke was white. And I was like, well, you know, can we make that black? Let's see how that looks. But, uh, but I mean, yeah, I mean, it was dead on right from the beginning and I've been absolutely thrilled to have it. Yeah. Awesome. Does he have a, like a Instagram handle or how would folks get a um, hold of this guy? I've only interacted with him through Facebook. So I know he's on Facebook, so you can definitely look him up there. And uh, I'd highly recommend it. I mean, he was a pleasure to yeah. work with. And all of his work for the Wicked House books has been great. Oh, yeah. I'll uh, track his links down and make sure to put those in the description. But uh, you have another book coming out entitled Galatok. Is that the? That's correct. That's correct. Galatok. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um the title itself is a play on the idea of linguistic drift, the way in which, you know, language kind of changes and transforms and uh, et cetera. The name's drawn from the name Gali Otok. Gali Otok is an island off the coast of Croatia that was home to a very infamous Soviet prison. Gali Otok translates roughly into the barren island. Sometimes it was nicknamed the naked island. And uh, basically it's a almost completely devoid of vegetation. And Soviet Yugoslavia built a political prison there. And the main punishment was that there was virtually no shelter, that, um, you know, the people were forced to engage in hard labor on the island, exposed to the relentless and merciless Mediterranean sun. In the years that it was operating, 16,000 prisoners were sentenced there, and over 4,000 of those died from exposure, illness, and torture. And uh, my grandfather spent a few years there for being a vocal opposition to the communist government. And that was kind of how it intersected my path. And so, you know, I mean, when you're trying to think about, OK, where do I want to set my next book? The abandoned island prison where thousands of people died in absolutely horrific conditions, you know, kind of naturally came to mind. Um, <laughs> but uh, but no, it's um, it's actually a science fiction horror novel. It's set like. I don't want to call it post-apocalyptic because, first off, it wasn't exactly an apocalypse that occurs in the story, rather a pandemic that triggers a nuclear war. But it's not global devastation, nuclear war. It's a fairly limited exchange that's enough to cause you know, substantial nuclear winter and then to knock basically the three main world powers out of the champion chairs. And so when the story occurs, it's considerably after those events and you know, governments have started reconstructing just on a smaller nature. And it's got a very heavily bureaucratic Eastern European tone to the narrative. And it follows uh, the main character, Hamily Varka, as he is dispatched with a small team of um, researchers to investigate reports of odd occurrences on the island. And shortly after their arrival, as you might imagine, they discover not all is as it seems and that um, not everybody who is with them has been operating according to the motives that they've claimed they are. Mm. And when does that come out? Um, so it's set for release in either the last week of August or the first week of September. 
It's been kind of funny because both the Mobius door and Galatok got accepted almost exactly at the same time. Actually, Galatok got accepted about three weeks before the Mobius door did, but their process uh, was just a little bit slower. It's through a place called Cactus Moon Press, and they were a little bit slower with it, and Wicked House was the first one to give me um, a release date, and so I was like, hey, can we push back Galatok to the end of the summer? Because I don't really want to be trying to press both books at the same time, so... I figured, uh, yeah, a good three-month run to exclusively do work with the Mobius store would be uh, would be pretty sufficient. Or hopefully, you know, we'll see how it does. If it picks up, I might end up regretting that decision and wishing <laughs> I pushed Regala talk back to Christmas or something. But um, you never really know. I read that you are senior editor for Symposium Magazine. So could you tell us a little bit about the magazine and the term rational <laughs> optimist? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, Symposium's been a great experience. I joined in about, I guess, three issues ago now. I had a piece accepted for publication through them, and they were just a delight to work with for uh, through the process. And they were unusually collaborative with their authors, which I thought was pretty refreshing. You know, there's a lot of journals that really don't interact too much with the people that they're printing. But I kind of liked the way they, you know, they really wanted to build relationships as part of the mission of the journal. And so I know a good number of people in various different writing communities. And, you know, for the issue I was in, they actually asked if I happened to know a couple of poets who would complement the piece that I was submitting that would have work that would kind of fit in the magazine with it. So I reached out to a couple of folk and uh, it was a lot of fun communicating with them and bringing their work in. And the magazine itself came out lovely. And so I knew that they were sort of reshuffling a little bit of their editorial staff. So I was like, hey, you know, if you need somebody to fill in for your next issue, I'd love to be a guest editor. I've always been interested in the editorial process and uh, just felt like a good way to sort of get my foot in the door to build a little experience with folk that I already knew I really liked. And once I started working with them, it was a delightful experience. You know, we've put together two full issues since then, and we're starting to talk about a third potential. But yeah, one of the things that did draw me to it is it is centered around the idea of rational optimism, which its earliest roots do come from the transcendental movement, Emerson, Thoreau, and very specifically, it is the belief that most of humanity's problems can be resolved through the application of reason and rationality, which, as you can tell, is definitely something that's something I believe in. And so I really liked the central mission and meaning behind the journal as well. Hmm. Okay. Sounds interesting. We'll have to check that out. So... You write novels, short stories, poetry, and teach English, which we'll get, <laughs> we'll get to later in the show. Where did your love of the written word come from? Um, so a couple of different things. Pretty simple, actually. So in terms of my love for writing, it's pretty funny. I've always had sort of a, a very mixed relationship when I was young, growing up with my sister. You know, she's uh, three and a half years older than me. We were pretty competitive. We had a, you know, kind of a Ken's household at times. But, you know, I always wanted to impress her. You know, I was your standard little brother looking up to an older sibling. And so I really wanted to impress her. And so I really worked to take a lot of interest in the things that she was interested in. And so, you know, she was three and a half years older and we lived in a household that was very permissive in what we were allowed to read and watch. So just for example, this is what I always love to tell people. 
I watched Alien for the first time when I was four. Damn. Um, and uh, I was, you know, I always joke with my mom that she raised me on horror movies. Uh, so, you know, I watched all the 50s horror, all the 60s horror when I was really little. And I'm not going to lie, I had a whole buttload of nightmares. Um, <laughs> and I grew up with a lot, a lot of fears as a result. So my sister really loved Mad Magazine. Um, oh, and yeah. she really wanted to be able to write her own parodies. And so... I don't even really remember how the initial idea came about, but one night she dragged me into her room because she was also a very self-conscious person. She, like if she made something, she wanted other people to be making things with her. Otherwise she felt odd doing it and uncomfortable doing it. And so she wanted to try to write her own parodies, but she didn't want to do it alone. And so she forced me to sit and write with her. And uh, at the time, I actually had no idea what to do. I really even hadn't thought about creating stories. But the one thing I knew was that at that point, and this was in third grade, I had seen the movie Aliens like 60 or 70 times. Um, now, ah, I've, seen, I've actually seen it, honestly, now probably 500 times. Um, wow. It's my all-time favorite film. But uh, I didn't know what else to write. So I sat down and I wrote the entire transcript of the film out from memory. Jesus. Um, and there was this really weird feeling to doing it. Like, I really enjoyed it. I felt like I did something that was well above where I should have been. And I was actually really proud to have done that. And then it became this thing that we did where, like, I started writing actually a parody of Aliens and it was absolutely ludicrous. I mean, it was based on all sorts of, you know, childish cartoons and stuff like that. I pulled from everything. <laughs> but um, I actually have, still have them somewhere in my office, about three dozen notebooks that are just page after page after page of the most dumbass shit you'll ever read. You um, gotta publish it. But, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was produced when I was in third grade and I loved doing it. You know, it was basically like pouring thoughts out just for the fun of it. I was just trying to make myself laugh. I was trying to make my sister laugh. And that was a huge, huge part of it. And then a couple other small things kind of came along the way in fifth grade. Um, I had a poet named Jim Cates come by my classroom and um, he had us do a couple exercises that really clicked with me. That's actually how I started writing poetry. I had a seventh grade teacher who was just wonderful teacher. I'm embarrassed because I can't remember his name anymore, but um, he basically, you know, had a couple creative writing assignments and then I just kept writing stories and he just kept reading them for me. You know, he was always willing to offer some commentary on it and he was very encouraging, very happy to share extra time. And, you know, so it was a kind of an accumulation of events. But then when I was, you know, graduating a senior in high school, I made a good friend who, um, was working on a novel. Um, admittedly, he was um, a little bit full of shit um, <laughs> because he also claimed that he already had a contract for it. And that part wasn't true, but it was also something I was like, wow, you know, so uh, an 18 year old can write a novel and get it published. And now granted, I'm saying this as a 44 year old who's just had their first novel published. Um, but no, you know, that was uh, also when I really started to sort of view writing from more of an adult lens where I was like, hey, this is something I can do alongside whatever I'm doing. This might be something I really want to pursue more seriously. And then it's just become increasingly a part of my life ever since. A couple teachers were truly inspiring, especially Dr. Smith, who I mentioned earlier, and uh, Michael Knight, fiction professor I had. And then, yeah, since then, it's my biggest obsession. <laughs> nice. Well, you also write poetry along with prose. In what ways does your poetry contrast with your prose as far as mood and subject matter? So 
That's a tough question because subject matter is easier. I always tell people that none of my poetry is exactly autobiographical, but it does draw extremely heavily from personal experience and personal history. Um, so if I'm going to write about myself, there's a good chance it's going to start coming out in the form of a poem. Uh, in fact, actually, I can't write creative nonfiction to save my life. Um, I <laughs> managed to complete a CNF essay. But no, um, basically, um, I do fictionalize it once I realize what the poem is about, what the mood is, what I'm trying to say, something along those lines. I'll start bending and changing details to better express that, to make it more effective. So there's definitely a strong imposition of fiction on the poetry. That's the single biggest part, though, is that with exception of some of my newest work where I've been dabbling a bit with speculative poetry, my poetry has been very grounded in my life and point of view. That being said, tonally, I'm not sure they are necessarily that different. I deal a lot with the horrific in uh, my poetry. So I've got poems that tackle very difficult subjects, you know, suicide, you know, severe medical catastrophes. And I don't shy away from graphic imagery in my poems. In a lot of ways, there's passages in my poems that probably read like a horror novel. The only difference, I guess, is that I don't typically in the poetry take the same speculative leap to create sort of that plot framework that leans into a supernatural element. Mm. Okay. Well, when it comes to writing prose, are you an outliner or a pantser? And, and if a pantser, how does the story evolve? Oh, I am probably 90% pantser, 10% plotter. The only form of outlining I do is I do jot down milestones that come to mind that I think I might want the story to reach. So right now, for example, I've got a novel in progress, and then I have two major turns, one of which I've already reached in the narrative that I want the story to take. So there's the one-third mark of my projected plot and then the two-thirds mark. Otherwise, though, the path I take to get there, I largely unfold as I write. And so I sit down and I read through the last few pages. And then I basically say, okay, so this happened, what happens next? I don't necessarily write linearly, though. I do jump around sometimes sketching out scenes, especially if I have lines of dialogue that come to mind that I think capture something very essential about a character's arc. I do definitely plant those further down into the document, and then I kind of try to write towards them. If I can't get to them, I just cut it, and I just look at what the new direction is. But uh, a lot of the times, you know, those came out for a reason. They came out because they're part of the direction the story is organically taking. Now, that being said, I don't have a completely unstructured approach. Um, what I do do as part of my writing is I think about structure extensively. So while I'm washing dishes, while I'm driving to work, while I'm on a walk or something like that, I do tend to also be um, mentally rearranging parts of the narrative. I actually tend to have, for lack of a better explanation, sort of a three-dimensional flowchart of the different narrative paths and themes going on in my head at most times. And I sort of reach up and move things around internally and then kind of play with order and sequencing. I run permutations of scenes while I'm driving to work. I just kind of talk through or just think through different ways the scenes could execute. And by the time I reached the end of the Mobius door, for example, you know, I'd probably run through, I don't know, 50, 60 different narrative paths. Like actually, if you were to see the early draft, uh, the earliest 
almost complete draft of the Mobius store. It's a radically different book than the one that ended up. You know, I cut a hundred page plot line at one point in the construction of the piece just because I realized that its ending didn't properly intersect with the way other paths were emerging. And at that point, I was like, well, I could either try to bend those paths to fit this one path, or I could eliminate two main characters. And, uh, you know, a massive arc of the story. And that just seemed to make more sense to me at the time. So yeah, I do tend to um, obsess over my narratives. And a lot of it is just something I do internally during the course of sort of day-to-day things. Okay. So what is your writing atmosphere? Do you have a Ray Bradbury crazy room with spooky stuff hanging from the ceiling? <laughs> um. So I I definitely don't have a fixed atmosphere. I have places I write more often than others. Like right now, I'm in my office, my home office, I should say. Um, and a lot of the decoration here is a set of massive bookshelves that my grandfather made. And it's, it's where I keep my home reading, the stuff that I either read because I really love it. My TBR pile, of course, which, you know, probably will fall over and kill me one day. Um, <laughs> and then... Um, the core books for the courses that I teach. So, you know, and then I have a lot of movie memorabilia in the office, especially about the movie Alien and also the movie The Thing, which, uh, you know, that had more of a direct influence on the Mobius store than Alien did. But, um, but no, and then to my left, I've got a drum set here. That's one of my favorite ways to blow off steam. I got a couple guitars in the room as well. I used to do a lot of art, and so I have a lot of my drawings and paintings around the room too. And then otherwise, uh, yeah, a, an absolute shitload of souvenirs from various trips I've taken. I love traveling. I don't always get to do it as often as I'd like anymore, but you know, especially when I was in school, you know, I used to love taking international trips. And yeah, there's a, a lot of memorabilia from kind of from that era in the office. But you know, I write at my kitchen table all the time. It's a nice sunny room with tons of windows. And so, um, you know, I like to drink my coffee there in the mornings and write. Um, late in the evening, I like hanging out with my wife while I write. And so, um, you know, we'll uh, put on a movie or read a book or something like that. Um, and then, you know, I'll pull out the laptop and just chill on the couch and cuddle up with her. I work in my office on campus, which um, that place is pretty boring. <laughs> it's uh you know, I mean, it's definitely an academia office. It's just got institutional shelves. A little sterile. You know, <laughs> everything is, you know, issued to me in there, aside from the books and a handful of personal items. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, really, the, the thing for me is that I really focus in when I write. I actually get very absorbed in what I'm doing. And so the atmosphere for me is, is actually fairly irrelevant because um, I really block it out very heavily. The one thing that I struggle with actually, and this makes me sad in some ways, is I don't write well to music. I have um, pretty strong synesthesia. Um, and so when I listen to music, the visual of the music overrides my ability to um, properly write images and envision what I'm working on. And so I do usually have a pretty still atmosphere, I guess. Okay. Well, where is the strangest place that you've ever gotten an idea for a short story? <laughs> oh, man. I mean... Part of it is, and my wife can attest to this, I mean, I, I think of stories just absolutely everywhere. Of course, you know, I do uh, come up with a lot of ideas while uh, washing dishes and things like that. Of course, kind of that standard, you know, zen of housework. 
my wife and I were driving to see Tori Amos in Atlanta and I just kind of started snickering to myself and she was like, what are you laughing about? And I was like, you know, I was just thinking about a story where people molt like cicadas, you know, instead of getting dressed. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, actually amusingly, that was one of my first pieces of short fiction that got nice. published in a visible place. <laughs> but, uh, but no, um, you know, I, I literally think of it absolutely everywhere. You know, I could be out playing soccer with the kids and then suddenly I'll be like, okay, guys, hang on a second. You know, I was sending myself emails while waiting in line at Universal Studios last summer with just a couple fragments of stories that I wanted to preserve. It literally is absolutely everywhere. <laughs> Sounds like a, uh, a busy neighborhood in your head. Oh, yeah. Like, I actively do try to remind myself to take breaks from it. It's really easy left to my own devices just to fall into these little worlds and get really absorbed with them. But, you know, I also have to make sure that I've got uh, two children of my own and two stepchildren. I definitely, you know, I uh, want to make sure that I'm spending plenty of time with them. I don't want to be somebody who's missed their lives. You know, I, I love it, you know, when I get opportunities to hang out with my wife. She's the greatest source of humor in my life and laughter. So, you know, I do actively kind of have to remind myself to actually shut off the ideas from time to time because uh, it can be overriding sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well, you are a senior lecturer at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. You have a bachelor's and a master's in English from the University of Tennessee at Knoxville and a master's from Spalding University with a specialty in poetry. And three of the classes that you teach that I came across have to do with Japanese literature, one specifically on horror, I think I recall. Can you yep. uh, tell us about those courses and your interest in Japanese literature? Well, so when I was an undergraduate, I met a professor named Dr. Levering, and I took Buddhist religion and philosophy with her and a couple other Eastern philosophy classes, and she was an absolute delight. And I got really interested in a number of the different perspectives of the Japanese Buddhist thinkers, particularly Matsuo Basho and Dogen. And I really liked the sort of intersection in their work between rationality and irrationality. Um, but, you know, to a certain extent, that was just sort of a philosophical interest. And it kind of petered out some as I sort of moved on with my own programs. But then a good friend of mine, Michael Allen, who um, I'll, I'll plug him slightly. He um, writes some amazing chip tunes music under the name of Roboctopus. Um, <laughs> but uh, he read a book by Haruki Murakami called Hard Boiled Wonderland and the End of the World. And uh, he thought it was right up my alley. And so I read it and I was absolutely blown away by it. Um, in particular, one thing that had sort of struck me about it was, you know, I was in an English major. I was taking all sorts of American, British literature classes, that kind of thing. And, you know, one conversation that comes up a lot in an academic forum, both for literature and for creative writing, is this really odd Western disdain for genre writing in academic circles, that there's this sort of belief that horror, science fiction, et cetera, are somehow lesser than realism and things like that. So, and one thing that struck me, though, about my initial exploration of Murakami, because I branched out pretty quickly after that first book, and actually at this point I own, I've read his entire catalog. Um, mm -hmm. And then 
I branched out into Kobo Abe, Kensaburo Oe. And one thing that really struck me about their work, though, was that they really didn't draw a line between, you know, realism and genre or realism and speculative or something along those lines, that their literature seemed to really just focus on this is what the story needs to make the meaning that it's conveying. And so, you know, you have wild science fiction elements in some of their stories. Kobo Abe's Woman in the Dunes feels like a retelling of the myth of Sisyphus is completely magical and irrational. But, uh, you know, there's really odd, dark magic elements in Kenzaburo Oe's Silent Cry. There's sort of this looming dread that's almost straight out of like a Western horror novel at its foundation. Um, so, you know, I, I got really interested in a willingness to explore genre elements in a literary context. You know, I thought, um, you know, from a classroom point of view, one of the single biggest challenges is both providing substantive meaning and thematics for conversation. That way we can actually dig deeper into the works. But also, I mean, students are young. I mean, they're, you know, these are 18, 19, 20, 21 year old kids. And, you know, I use kids loosely, of course, but they want stuff that's going to actually engage them. That's exciting to talk about. And so, you know, I, I really felt like, you know, this kind of combination of elements in Japanese literature was very conducive to energetic discussion because it allowed people to actually enjoy the plot. People were asking in my classes, what happens next? And then we also were able to talk about what are they trying to say with this? You know, what are the deeper meanings that we're exploring? And, you know, it, it just led to dynamic conversations. You know, the first class I taught was simply magical realism in the post-World War II Japanese novel. And the level of energy of the students in there compared to a lot of the other classes I remembered taking and then classes I've sort of observed or watched students interacting in, their level of energy was phenomenal. It's one of the best classes I've ever taught, and I've been chasing after that ever since. Awesome. Well, you mentioned earlier that you play the drums <laughs> in your, uh, I think your bio, you said you play the drums badly, but I doubt <laughs> that. I doubt that. So what kind of drum set do you have and who is the best drummer, Matt Garska, or I guess I should say the better drummer, Matt Garska or Neil Pert? So I actually just have a simple Pearl kit. I got a three tom setup. I got five cymbals and a hi-hat, bass and snare, double bass pedals. But, uh, like, honestly, uh, honest when I say I do play them badly, um, you know, I really couldn't, I don't think I could play a full set with anybody. I started pursuing it at the beginning of the pandemic for two reasons. One, it's something I'd always wanted to do. And then the isolation of the pandemic made me want to seek alternate forms of recreation, you know, especially exercise. I'd been an amateur boxer before that. And then the oh. pandemic shut that down real fast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so uh, at that point, I was like, well, I can't do this. And this is how I've been, you know, keeping healthy. So let's do something else that's going to keep me sane. So yeah, you know, drumming is very kinetic and I really like that about it. But uh, so now the other part of the question, so my initial response is, well, where's Terry Bazio in that question? Because he's definitely one of my all-time favorite drummers. Um, but no, I, I, I do go, <laughs> I, I do go Camp Neil for that question, I must admit. I've always had a love-hate relationship with Rush. I've never been the biggest fan of their vocalist, but I love a lot of their music. But uh, my drumming idols, though, are actually Igor Cavalera and um, Danny Carey. Danny um, Carey, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I've been a lifelong Tool fan. They're still one of my favorite bands. And then, you know, their live experience, of course, is pretty oh, phenomenal. Oh, God, yes. Um, Even their know, intermission. Uh, 
you know? Yeah, I know. Where it's just cool the way they start that clock up. <laughs> oh, absolutely. No, I mean, yeah. one of the things that always stood out to me, I saw them back in, I guess it was 98 on the second Enema tour. And during what later became known on Dissectional as Merkaba, Maynard sat down and played a PlayStation game called Intelligent Cube on the big screen for about 10 minutes. Um, and I don't know, there was just there, there was something just, you know, straight up pretty ballsy about that I had to respect, you know, like it just seems so like, you know, it's kind of a reconceptualization of the relationship between performers and show and audience and show. Uh, and I was pretty fascinated with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, Andrew, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Oh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Um, I guess I would mention that uh, I'm part of an event we're calling One Hell of a Night. And it's a reading of myself and two other Wicked House authors, M.J. Mars, the author of The Suffering, and Blaine Daigle, the author of The Broken Places. And uh, it'll be about a 45-minute reading followed by a Q&A. I'll be posting it up onto YouTube uh, okay. as well. Um, and then um, all three of us will be linking to it on our feeds. All right. Sounds good. Listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Andrew, thank you again for joining me. Thank you. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to the email newsletter by clicking the link in the description. Be sure to join me next Tuesday, where I will have a splatterpunk author that takes you back to childhood joy and adulthood terror. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Give it a squeeze, get my lungs, won't let me breathe. No, you do it, cause you're